Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, there we go. Well, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. We've got a special guest returning to the show. Please welcome Josh Young, Portfolio Manager at Bison Interest. Josh, welcome back to the show, and thanks for joining us again. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing excellent. It's a later part of the day, so hopefully we've got enough fumes in the tank to, to keep things going, which I'm sure we will. Matt somehow strong-armed you to come back to the show. Is that correct? Sure. We can stick with that story. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Matt, why don't you go ahead? I know you and Josh obviously have been you know talking offline here. I'll let you kick things off. Well, Josh, you know, I guess most of the listeners, hopefully, if, if they haven't, they should check out our our previous conversation just because it's so interesting when we talk about the oil field. I mean, this is a drilling fluids podcast, but obviously oil and gas affects everything. And the, you know, global economic situation is certainly something that everybody's talking about and most people are scratching their heads. And you, you know, you have this fund bison interests and, you know, as I understand it, your fund is like crushing it, which we'll let you talk more about. However, we want to hear a little bit more about some of the things you're seeing in oil and gas and, and just these global issues everybody's talking about just to kind of start the conversation with some folks who might not understand it. Yeah. So prices for stuff going up if they're not up a lot already and labor rates are going up and if they're, they're not up already and we're really kicking off inflation and we haven't seen anything like this in decades. When we talk about in inflation, so like sometimes we hear the words that like the Fed is saying, oh, it's just transitory. We're getting out of this COVID thing where there were constraints and everything just sort of seems to work itself out of the system. And one thing I've read from, you know, all of your tweets and, you know, newsletter and that sort of thing is you think that's probably not accurate. And could you shed a little light on that? Yeah, yeah. I heard this uh, a few different ways to say it. I think like the head of Bridgewater, which has been calling for inflation for a little while now, I'm trying to remember exactly what they said, but there's a joke they didn't say, I think, where they say you can't be like a little bit pregnant. I think the head of Elliott Investments, which is this very famous investment firm, the head of that firm is brilliant and almost never does interviews. And he did an interview, I think it was late last year, or early this year, where he talked about how everyone always thinks when inflation bouts start that they're going to be temporary and they're going to be small. And he said also, you just, you can't have a little bit of inflation. So, you know, the Fed, similar to other people that have a position that they're trying to represent publicly, they're publicly representing that inflation is transitory. But this whole concept of transitory inflation seems to be problematic based on people who know a lot more about it than I do or than, you know, anyone else is likely. Josh, can you, for lack of better terms, just dummy it down and, and maybe explain the difference between secular and transitory inflation or not even relating it to, to inflation, but, but what the difference is? Because I think there may be some people out there scratching out like, what is that? I've never heard transitory before. Can you help kind of bridge the gap a little bit? Yeah. So transitory inflation would be if the price of stuff fell because of some reason. So COVID happens and the price of you know restaurants all discount their prices because 
you can't eat in their restaurants. So to get you to buy to go, they discount by like 20%, let's say. And so then the restaurants reopen and they raise their prices to get back. So they have to raise them 25% to get them back to that level after the 20% price reduction to get back to flat. So that would be considered transitory inflation would be that move back to their normal price level. It's a price increase, but then it stops because then they're just at their normal price level. Intransitory inflation would be, you know, just secular or, or kind of continued inflation would be, so the restaurants reopen and they raise their prices and then their food costs more because food providers to restaurants had to raise their prices too. And then there had been payments to their workers while they were not working from the government. And maybe the workers were getting paid more by the government to not work than they were getting paid at the restaurants to work. And so maybe in order to get workers again, they have to actually pay people more than they were paying before. And so suddenly you're a restaurant operator and you're trying to just charge what you were charging before, but everything costs more. So in order to earn a profit margin, you have to raise your prices. And so when you raise your prices, then people going to your restaurant are now paying more for food at the restaurant. And then, you know, those people now effectively their wages are less. And so they need to get paid more in order to be able to go eat out the same number of meals. And, and obviously it's not all just driven by restaurants. That's one small part of it. But yeah. You- well, let's go with the lumber example. I mean, so I think a lot of people are experiencing observations of this and say, how long is it going to last? But one of the arguments that we've heard is, you know, I like to build furniture, tend to do hardwoods, none of this construction type materials. But if I go look at a sheet of plywood right now, it's probably two or three times what I paid for it two years ago. And it's sort of shockingly high. And people have been using this as an example of inflation. And then they said, oh, well, the the price went down a little bit. And so like that's everything sort of rebalancing. But you looked into this a little more deeply and, and your perspective was it might not be that. And I thought that was an interesting part of one of your your investment theses, I guess. But could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So we, we put out a white paper on that to try to explain what was happening and what we were seeing. And there was this story that was told similar to the restaurant story where it was just about, you know, turning sawmills back on and expanding their capacity back to their utilization, back to where they were pre-COVID and that that would fully supply the market that story wasn't totally accurate. And the thing that was missing was that actually demand for lumber is higher right now than it was before COVID. And so what we're experiencing is they didn't build enough sawmills over the last 15 years as lumber supply has steadily increased. And with increased housing demand and an increased tendency to fix up houses because house prices are higher and so people want to sell and move and whatever, there's structurally higher lumber demand. And so there's the kind of transitory aspect, which is people or sawmills starting to get back up to their prior capacity. And so there was some lag. And then there's the extra amount, which is the extra demand relative to before COVID. And so that extra demand is above the amount that people, that the sawmills are capable of supplying. So that's where higher prices are coming from. And, you know, lumber prices went way higher and then they came down quite a bit. So 
prices two or three months from now at Home Depot or whatever for your lumber are going to be probably lower than they are right now, but they're still probably going to be way higher than they were a couple of years ago. And that's probably not going away. And as you extrapolate that out to other commodities and then to other services, you start seeing prices getting reset higher more broadly. And like we were saying at the start, that doesn't tend to stop. That tends to continue as there's pressure on people's, on both businesses and on individuals' budgets. There's a tendency for prices and wages to increase in kind of a circular mechanism, which would be inherently not transparent. What are your thoughts? So I was reading, I still haven't made entire sense of it because I've been kind of, well, I'll say asleep at the wheel on some of this, but so we talked about all this stimulus and, you know, now we got the Delta variant and maybe need for more stimulus or adjustment measures. And then these like infrastructure plans that I wasn't quite clear, but I've heard between one and then like $4 trillion, depending on what maneuvers are used to get them passed. And I mean, I guess a trillion dollars in the grand scheme of things maybe doesn't feel like as much when debt is that high. But do you think those things are also being baked into some of this now? Or do you think that we would see that when people, you know, you pass an infrastructure plan, now concrete prices go up because demand went up and there's more debt. And does that stuff all build on itself? Am I on the right track there? Or what are you seeing there? So I'll try to keep it, again, kind of simple, relatively and relatively high level. There's this concept of a multiplier effect where spending that gets added, so incremental spending in an economy sees a multiplier. So when the government spends extra money or when a bank lends money on kind of fractional reserve-based lending, that money gets then spent more than one time. So you like spend money and then the recipient spends that money and at some percentage of the amount they receive. So the argument for transitory inflation, so for this not kind of spiraling, is that government spending is massively inefficient. And I tend to agree with that. And so the government spending on its own is not very likely to spur much inflation because the multiplier on government spending is very low. That money doesn't cycle very much. It just kind of goes out and then it doesn't die right away, but it doesn't, the multiplier might be under two, whereas the multiplier on, you know, taking savings and spending it at a restaurant or on a new toy or whatever, the multiplier on that might be higher. But that doesn't really matter as much. What seems to be mattering a lot more are artificially low interest rates. And that seems to be spurring a real estate economy that is a big part of the U.S. economy as well as other parts of the developed world. And it's spurring a real estate bubble. And, you know, just as prices go well beyond what's affordable for the average family, that, you know, that would kind of naturally correct itself through a cycle, through higher cost of capital, forcing prices down at some point. And instead, we're seeing interest rates get pushed lower and lower by the Federal Reserve buying more and more debt. So so actually the government spending that money that you were describing might not really be the cause. It's like counterintuitive. It might not be causing the inflation. It might actually be kind of postponing a little bit of inflation because it's so inefficient, but then all of that debt is bought by the Federal Reserve or by people borrowing money at almost 0% interest to buy it. And 
that drives down interest rates and the lower interest rate seems to be driving, driving things as much or more than the extra government spending. I'm happy to kind of dive into that in a little bit if you want, but hopefully that helps explain kind of the difference. It's pretty interesting to think about because I've, I've heard about the inefficiency, but I never put two and two together. Justin, did you have a, a follow-up question on that one? Yeah, or? I was just curious. I mean, the cost of capital is certainly an interesting topic, not only for, you know, just regular consumers, but also in our world, you know, oil and gas companies, this supposedly, it appears like the cost of capital is low, but at what point do you feel that, that we're going to hit an inflection point and then they're going to start raising interest rates or are they just kind of monitoring it and, and going to you know, fly by night, kind of see how things go. I mean, is there typically a plan in place to say, okay, at this point, we know we need to start raising interest rates because we cre- we are creating and spurring these bubbles. Any thoughts towards that? So it's really weird, and I'm still trying to fully understand it myself. But a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Fed come out and say that, hey, maybe inflation isn't transitory for a little while longer. And somehow in response to the Fed saying their monetary controls weren't working, somehow that spurred a huge amount of bond buying and interest rates going even lower. So again, I don't really understand what happened there. Maybe the Fed just like bought a whole bunch of bonds, try to push interest rates down to try to undo some of the inflationary effects. I'm not sure what exactly happened there. And that does seem to be a big part of what pushed oil prices down recently as well as the valuations of oil and gas companies and other sort of value equities and other commodities. But it's very strange because if you think about it, lower interest rates are highly inflationary because people then borrow that money and buy houses and buy boats and you know, spend it on re- at restaurants and other stuff. So I don't know if that, if that helps, but, but yeah. there's that kind of weird cycle going on. No, it, it makes sense. And I'm curious on the oil and gas side, and I have some other questions before, but just sort of on that topic with oil and gas, because the cost of capital is relatively low, are you seeing more and more companies issuing debt and trying to take advantage of these low interest rates? Is that happening? I mean, obviously, the investment community is still probably very reluctant, but is that playing into our world as well by any way? And if so, could you describe it a little bit? Sure. So, so there's a few low quality issuers who were able to issue some high yield notes a couple of weeks ago. And that, I mean, there's kind of different perspectives on that. They're not highly credit rated, but they're actually generating a decent amount of free cash flow. And so if they were in the widget business instead of the oil and gas business, right, manufacturing some random other either commodity or random other thing they would have been able to access capital for even cheaper. So low interest rates is helping a little bit in terms of capital availability, but there's not really a lot of capital available for, there's not investment dollars available for expansion. So not for capital investment. So there's cash available if you're trying to use it to acquire assets, not to build new things, right. not to wells, but to acquire assets. There's cash available if you want to refinance other debt and the interest rates are pretty good, but there's not a lot of debt capital and there's not a lot of equity capital available for new projects. And so that's very inflationary for kind of the same reason that like not building sawmills is a problem for when housing demand goes up because there's just not enough lumber. And we're seeing that play out right now in oil prices. Interesting. If we could, Matt, do you have any other questions 
on the inflation Do, stuff. but it sounds like you've got a list. And so I want you to keep going, no, Justin. No, I don't want to pivot if you're still wanting to talk about it. Trust me. No, go ahead, please. Well, I would like to move on to the dollar index if we could. And it seems like there's a lot of confusion about where that's headed. What do you make of this dollar and where do you think it's heading? So the dollar has been bid up as interest rates have been falling. And this is extremely weird. I think it's indicative of a bond bubble and you know interest rates have been falling now for 30 plus years so it does seem you know bonds are very cheap or sorry very expensive the interest rates are very low relative to where they've been historically especially given where economic activity is and how much it's growing so and especially given a 5% plus inflation print right if you own a 10 year bond at 1% interest you're losing 4% on your money. Obviously, you're betting that, in, that inflation falls a lot, but it's a very weird bet. Similarly, as interest rates fall, you should expect the currency price to fall too, because the relative attractiveness of government bonds is going to fall versus other government bonds of other countries. And that's kind of like one of the big factors in currency values is the attractiveness of like US government bonds versus like EU bonds. So if EU interest rates fall relative to dollar interest rates, then people in the EU take their savings and they move it to dollar bonds in order to benefit from the higher interest rate here. And that should drive the value of the dollar up. We're seeing the opposite of that. Well, half of that where interest rates are falling here and therefore people are buying government debt here. And that's driving the dollar price up. So it should be going the other way. And that's where you have to wonder, hey, like what else is going on and how much of this is driven by Federal Reserve and other sort of monetary policy intervention versus sort of fundamental economic factors. So things are not going in the same direction as one would have assumed based on the fundamentals. It seems like, you know, even just kind of listening to you, you're I mean, someone's scratching your head, like, what is going on here behind the scenes? It's, it's hard to forecast, I guess, or it, it appears so. I mean, are there any theories or any other economists sort of feel the opposite way? Or, or does anyone feel like they've got a good grasp of what's going on? Or, or is there anyone saying things that, are, that really interest you at this point? I mean, so I, I'm an economist by training and economists are great at like making up stories to try to explain stuff. That just because they say it and say it with confidence doesn't mean that it's correct or believable. It just, you know, sounds good. Unless um, Josh is speaking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, like, we'll <laughs> all do it. I'm trying to explain it in kind of, I don't think I have a full explanation. I think, like I said, like, I actually don't really understand why these things are, are moving in the way they are. And I think to me, it's just indicative of things breaking. So the best explanation I've seen for this environment from a, investment perspective, as well as from a kind of movement of interest rates and movement of debt, is a a friend who came up with the concept of Project Zimbabwe, where basically as COVID got real bad and as we shut down our economy and the world shut down and forced people to, to stop engaging in economic activity, there was this idea of printing and stimulating using fiscal and monetary policy to a degree that's never been seen before in history by a lot, and where the analogs were the Weimar Republic and Germany in the 20s and early 30s, and Zimbabwe under kind of current conditions. And so 
that seems to be kind of the best analog. And if you kind of expected things to play out similarly to how they played out in the early days of the Weimar Republic or in Zimbabwe as they started to debase their currency, that's to some extent how things are playing out here. Yeah, not, not dark at all, but what's Harris's, is it Adventures in Capitalism? He has, a, he has a website where you can read some of his like blog entries on all this. Yeah, yeah. The, the copy came up with it. And actually, so I've been meaning to pull this out. My uncle gave this to me years ago. He was selling gold coins and stuff. So this is a hundred trillion dollar bill from the bank, Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. And so this is what a hundred trillion dollars looks like. Can you put it it's closer not- to the camera? Yeah, <laughs> Ooh, and it's a lot of zeros. I've seen someone post that on Twitter and not necessarily that one per se, but I've seen people post that kind of stuff. It's hilarious. What, what's the value of that right now? Or does it have any value? <laughs> I don't know. Well, <laughs> gave it to me, I think it might've been worth, you know, I think it cost more to buy it just because it was like <laughs> brand new and on whatever. It might've cost a hundred or a thousand times as much as it was worth. I don't think there's any real monetary value the, the paper itself with the ink on it is probably worth a lot more than what you Right. That is hilarious. So yeah. So I think when you think about it from like a personal perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense to own a home. And like, I haven't really been like a long time believer in that, but I, I bought a house here in Houston somewhat recently. You know, I, I think it makes sense to own real assets and to have exposure to this because to the extent that this continues to play out as we've seen in other sort of potentially hyperinflationary scenarios. I mean, you really want to own real assets and you also want to expect high degrees of volatility. So it's scary to short stocks. Mm-hmm. Stocks are going to tend to go up and other sort of things, but they're not going to go up consistently. So you don't really want to borrow money to buy them. That's where buying a house is interesting because you can borrow 80 or 95% or whatever the purchase price. So, but it's yeah. not, you're not going to get margin called on your house. You're just, you can make your you know, monthly mortgage payments. And it doesn't matter if the house price goes up or down or whatever, you just make your payments and you're fine. So again, none of this is like specific, like personal investment advice or whatever, but sure. in that sort of context, it makes sense for, you know, to own certain things and to avoid other things. And so. Gotcha. Yeah. I think this is the best framework that I can come up with in terms of like what's what's happening. And you know, my, my friend coined that term and it seems to really fit with a lot of the things that have happened. And the big difference is the dollar is a reserve currency. So a lot of transactions around the world are done in dollars. And then the other big difference is when hyperinflation was going on in, in, in Zimbabwe or in Germany pre-World War II. It wasn't going on to the same extent around the world. Right now, there's kind of this race between the EU and the US and Japan and other kind of developed economies to print as many dollars as possible or as many of the local currency as possible. And this is happening in China as well. And so we're seeing this kind of like devaluation across the board. So seeing the relative dollar price movement is less meaningful, I think, than it's been historically. So that move of like, lower interest rates in the US and higher dollar value, it's like, okay, like, this is the dollar versus what the euro, the, the yen, like, yeah, printing even more money there. So I don't know. Mm. Interesting. I'd love to move on to, to oil. Matt, are, are you ready to move on to oil? 
Yes, I was I was ready to make that segue as well. So go for it, Justin. Awesome. Well, so I'm sure we've all seen there's lots of buzz around $100 oil, but folks like the EIA and others show signs of possibly supply outrunning demand in 2022. Obviously, OPEC Plus made an announcement about increasing output starting in August through December, which I think is going to add about 2 million a day by the end of the year. What's your take? Which side of the fence do you lean on right now? And, and what are you looking at to, to kind of make your projection, I guess? So, so one of my favorite charts is the IEA. So not EIA, but yes. kind of a similar organization. Yeah. Um, they have these, they put out these annual demand forecasts. And if you look at these annual demand forecasts, every year they underestimate demand. And they've done this for many years. It's been basically, I mean, like COVID, they overestimated demand. Uh, so for 2020, but every other year they've underestimated demand in many cases by over a million barrels a day. So my tendency is to not rely if a group is systematically wrong in one direction on their forecasts to not rely on their forecasts or at least to adjust their forecasts to the amount that they're systematically wrong. So the degree to which those guys are wrong tells me that there is likely going to be undersupply. And it's hard to know the path of OPEC plus oil coming back onto the market. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know the path of Iran oil, Iranian oil coming onto the market that's not already being kind of smuggled through Iraq or other places. And it's hard to know exactly how much drilling activity is going to be in North America. But what it looks like in aggregate is with current trends, as well as the recent OPEC plus deal, as well as, you know, demand increasing from people moving to the suburbs, from driving more, from taking fewer subways and other sort of mass transit, and that continuing even as kind of COVID fears are more or less declining, even with Delta, relatively speaking, people are way less scared now than they were a year ago, and that's continuing to progress. It does look like we're going to end up in a supply crunch relative to demand over the next few years, and inventory is starting to draw down as they have over the last six weeks is a good start. It's like indicative of what may be coming. Right. It's really hard to know when, but oil prices, similar to other cyclicals, it's reasonable to expect that in a structural undersupplied environment, oil prices would go higher than they've ever been before on an inflation adjusted basis. So you know, there's room for oil if it behaves like other cyclicals have. And if this environment plays out as it's looking, you could see oil at much higher than $100 prices at some point. Right now, companies are generating some free cash flow. People are happy. Oh my goodness, the investment community is looking like, oh wow, I didn't realize you could do it. Good for you, hip hop hooray. Oil prices are going up. At what point, if there is a supply crunch, is someone going to all of a sudden you know, put their foot in the dirty water and go, let's start growing again? I mean, do you see that becoming an issue? And if so, I mean, are we going to put ourselves back in this spot? And it, it's hard to tell, right? But I feel like there's going to be I feel like OPEC plus and us may be playing chicken and, and who's, you know, maybe eventually someone's going to flood the market one way or the other, just because, you know, they can and maybe try to take advantage. I mean, it just, I don't know. It just seems like things are too good to be true right now, perhaps. And someone's going to, again, screw it up for somebody else. I mean, what do you, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think, I think if that were the case, it would look a lot less bullish into the medium term. I think, the total current productive capacity, if all wells in the US were turned on, but you know, and all rigs that are available and actually functioning 
yeah. got turned on and all frack stacks that were available and functioning got turned on. And somehow people were found to be able to actually work on those. So again, like the cost of all of that would be immense. Yeah. But even if all that turned on and all OPEC capacity, actual capacity turned on, I mean, you'd be talking about maybe oversupply of, I don't know, two or 3 million barrels a day, which is a lot, but like as demand fully recovers, we might be two or 3 million barrels a day undersupplied. So you kind of need US drillers and Canadian drillers to be back out there drilling an increasing number of wells. And you need OPEC to be expanding their capacity, which they're not mostly. That's what this recent fight was about. UAE has been expanding capacity and the rest of them mostly haven't. And you probably need Iranian production online and you probably need Russian production to be growing, which it's having trouble growing. So I think there's like one really big thing missing from what you described, in addition to kind of just like demand rapidly coming back on, right? stabilizing at a higher base than it was in 2019 by at least a couple million barrels a day. In addition to that, there's been a huge step down in global spend on large long cycle oil and gas projects. So like the Gorgons of the world, the whatever, you know, big offshore development of giant fields. And there's been very little onshore exploration too worldwide. And so we're under discovering resource and reserves by a lot. And we have been for many years. And especially since 2014, we haven't even been yet exploring. We haven't even been developing things that we've already discovered. And so there's a huge backlog of CapEx that should have happened that didn't. And so when that comes into play and how it comes into play is debatable to some extent, but in every commodity that ends up, unless the commodity goes away, which oil hasn't, oil demand's actually higher on a kind of post-COVID basis than it was before. And it's continuing to grow by over a million barrels a day beyond that kind of into the future. There's just not enough production. There's not enough production capacity. So I think like these worries about short-term, like do North American drillers turn on another 50 or 100 rigs or not? I don't know that that matters so much. And maybe they actually should be because maybe in a year or two, we'll wish that we had 300 more rigs on yeah. big under supply. Well, an interesting graph that Matt and I had looked at, and I'm sure you've seen is the WTI relative to the oil rig count in the US. And clearly we're, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess I have an idea, but how we're able to be producing 11.2, I think it is right now, is I would imagine all the inventory drawdowns that we've had, but I can't see, you know, once we continue to draw them down, I thought it was going to be a lot less, but do you see our U.S. production dropping, maintaining, or increasing versus, you know, relative to what operators are trying to do? Because right now you're seeing a lot of the smaller private companies increasing rate count a little bit, but the majors are staying relatively flat with, you know, I've, I've heard discussions amongst, you know, our customers of, of possibly ramping up a little bit, but where do you see oil production in the U.S. going say in this in the short run here? Yeah, so Halliburton came out and they estimated that US onshore production should grow by 500,000 barrels a day in 2022. So they have more insight into customer orders and so on than I do. So that, sure. let's just like take that as a given yeah. or just assume that that's kind of roughly correct. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on public companies to not drill so much. A lot of private companies are growing rapidly because public companies that can't drill so much or aren't being allowed to 
are coming in and buying private companies that have grown a lot real fast and paying high prices for that production. So, because then they can like rationalize, you know, maintaining that production. So you look at like the deal that Pioneer did recently, like it doesn't make sense until you look at it like that. And they didn't overpay relative to historical prices, you know, in normalized environments, but they overpaid relative to the current environment. And it makes a lot more sense when you look at kind of what they're able to do with that, what they're allowed to do with that. And it was also accretive for them. So it wasn't like a bad deal. It just like didn't make a lot of sense relative to other transactions. And if you see that sort of transaction and other similar ones, you start to understand why some of the private guys are drilling so aggressively because they're getting paid when they sell their companies for their flush production. The public guys aren't really able to grow very much, if at all, just based on what their lenders are willing to do, as well as what their shareholders are allowing them to do. So, you know, 500,000 barrels a day is not, that's not a lot of growth relative to the theoretical amount that production could grow. And then there's a kind of bigger problem, and I imagine you guys run into this a little bit, where a lot of wells that have been drilled have been kind of high graded. And so one aspect of that drilling rig count um, is duck drawdown. So a lot of wells that were drilled historically on great locations are now being completed, and fewer wells are being drilled than are being completed. So eventually you need more rigs. It's like not a one-to-one correlation between drilling rigs and production, but there is between rack stacks and production. So right. that matters to some extent, but it also really matters kind of where people are going to be drilling when they bring on the additional rigs to kind of match with the current rack stack count. And there's just not that many more core locations. And people joke about various operators with their double, triple, quadruple, premium, whatever kind of names for and different companies have different names for, to indicate that their wells are highly economic at low prices. But you know, last year and even the first couple of quarters with low capital spend have kind of highlighted the low returns on a full cycle basis that oil and gas producers have been generating. And that's with them high-grading their inventories. So as they drill more stuff, their returns may get worse, which may necessitate even higher prices to justify bringing on additional rigs. Hmm. It's not a short question, but it looks like <laughs> yeah, it looks like we need we need a lot higher prices to get a lot more rigs. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. I'm glad you. I mean, I'm glad you kind of went into detail there. And, and I mean, I guess to sum it up, is it sounds like there's a lot of room for growth without negatively impacting the market of oversupplying and all of a sudden getting back to this oversupply. It sounds like if anything, we're going to be behind quite a bit, which is going to therefore drive oil prices in theory up possibly 100 plus, which is, you know, again, is good for everybody, but we'll see it. If I was a driller right now, I would be using the relatively low cost of services because I think they're going to be going up significantly here over the next six to 18 months. So right now it might not be a bad time to ramp up. And so we'll, we'll kind of see how that goes. But Matt, do you have any supplemental questions or anything to add? Well, one thing that I, I wanted to add on to the demand aspect is well, so months ago, Josh alluded to this thing about transportation, but he was looking at, yeah, actually everybody's moving to the suburbs and they're actually driving more and not taking public transit. This is like this really nuanced thing. And then of course, what the Wall Street Journal caught on what a few weeks ago, and you were like, thanks for crediting me for a white paper I wrote months ago. But we've seen these little nuanced case studies in demand 
I have another one. And then I want you to comment on if you've been looking at anything else, because so, you know, dry bulk supply vessels. So basically things that move ore around both like iron ore for steel, bayrite ore, but this is also tied to shipping cycles for crops like soybeans and that sort of thing. And one of the interesting things I came across was these bulk vessels talking about how if you look at people's diets moving to protein-based as countries advance and develop, that that is inherently increasing the demand for oil, not only to transport crops to feed all these animals, but, you know, think about fertilizer, transportation, all that. And these were the, the dry vessel guys talking about this being another, you know, market driver besides a number of other shipping factors that, you know, are affecting just the cost of transportation, let alone the demand for the goods that are being shipped. Anyways, that was another interesting little case study where I was like, that is a sustainable energy demand. Like that's going to keep going. But you seem to catch these little nuanced things every once in a while. And I don't know, you seem to have a knack for it. I don't know if there's any other, any other ones that come to mind off the top of your head, or maybe just a practice you have where you, you like to sniff around on certain things. Could you just add some color to that? Sure. So, so that's actually a good example of like what doesn't, so, so half of that is reasonable. And it's like, mm-hmm. I was laughing kind of because there's a COVID related supply issue right now with dry bulk shippers where there's we noticed. one port in China that shut down. And so everything is kind of getting like reallocated. So that's like what not to look for in like in transitory inflation, right? Like that's transitory. And so I think what the dry bulk shippers are doing, and I was also laughing because I was just on BNN a little while ago talking about Suncor and why I don't own the stock. And like, that's like the most widely held energy stock in Canada. So, you know, <laughs> show up in Canada and say, hey guys, like you're number one. It's like telling US retirees not to own like Chevron and Exxon. Like you can't, like you can do it, but like you go on CNBC and say, don't own these things that like everyone owns them. They're in their retirement accounts. They're a big part of the index. <laughs> So I'm going to do so that there's a whole bunch of Canadian retail investors sharpening their axes and pitchforks. There's going to be a bunch of dry bulk shippers in a second from what I just said. Like that's so half of that's true, right? So okay. that almost nothing to do with dry bulk shipping, right? Dry bulk shipping is really driven by like iron ore and copper and so on. And there, there is increasing demand for those commodities. So like that matters, but like the spike in day rates on dry bulk has nothing to do with the sort of intransitory inflation that we were talking about before and everything to do with a particular port that's gotten disrupted and messed up routes. And so as things settle back down, prices should fall a lot. They'll still be higher, right? And like these guys will still make money relative to what they made historically, but there's no way that current dry bulk rates stay anywhere close. I mean, it's like lumber at its peak it went from 200 to 1500 and then down to five or 600 the 1500 number wasn't the right number to fixate on. It was the five to 600 number, which is still way higher than 200. So you want to focus on, I think like the sustainable thing, but half of that, I think just generally, like we have this idea and like this happened, you know, Jeff Bezos just went up into space today and I've seen different estimates, whether it's Amazon that pollutes a lot or whether it's like his supposedly green hydrogen, which is not green and insanely energy intensive, huge emissions from that. And then he gets back and is like, oh yeah, climate change is an issue. It's like, cool, dude, like if climate change is an issue, like why don't you own one normal size house instead of 20 big houses and yachts and all this other dramatically like intensely oil intensive stuff, including space tourism. So 
I think like there's this easy thing that we do in Western societies where we have enough food and we have safe, comfortable, air-conditioned and heated shelter where we like think, oh, well, you know, just because you're in India or China or whatever, you don't deserve that. And I actually think a lot of that's actually, it's kind of ironic because a lot of these same people are very woke, but it's deeply racist. Like people, regardless of their skin color, regardless of where they live, deserve to have food and housing and not to die of heat stroke or other sort of like really easily preventable things that hydrocarbons solve. So there's multiple billions of people who have food insecurity. There's multiple billions of people who don't have access to air conditioning, who don't have access to you know, hydrocarbon powered transport. And they're not skipping to electric vehicles that cost 40 or $50,000 a car. They're skipping to you know, a moped that costs 200 bucks, but uses gasoline or diesel or whatever. And so, or, or from that to maybe a $2,000 car, which uses gasoline or diesel. So I think there's just this giant shift, thankfully, among a kind of emerging and frontier markets where extremely poor people who were starving to death are getting enough food and where they're getting access incrementally to air conditioning, getting access to some of the basic things that we take for granted and that's very, very oil intensive. And that's where that kind of million barrels a day plus of demand annually is coming from. And people freak out about it from a climate perspective because they're like, oh man, this is going to mess up the climate. But then they do that from their yacht or from their giant house that's air conditioned and ignore that like that's going to feed starving people and it's preventing preventable diseases. And, you know, it's kind of this, I guess I threw a lot in there, but like there is this huge trend that's secular, you know, where it's just, it's happening kind of regardless of what else happens, where very poor people are very fortunately getting less poor and they're able to do some of the things that we take total advantage of and just take for granted. And, you know, it's very fortunate, but it also means that oil demand probably continues to rise into the indefinite. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'll add, we are going to have a vessel broker on an upcoming podcast. So this, this could get interesting. One more thing, which is just mentioned this, like I'm very bullish on oil services also. So while oil companies are, and you know, that's very relevant for you guys and, you know, for your audience, while oil companies are maintaining their capital discipline right now, that desire by their investors will shift over time. And like Justin was saying, like, I think it makes sense incrementally to spend a little more money. If you're going to spend it now or you're going to spend it beginning of 2022, it kind of doesn't matter so much for the global oil balance. If you have the inventory, which many companies don't have, but if you have the inventory, it's maybe not the worst idea to take advantage of abnormally low oil services pricing, whether it's rigs or frack stacks or mud or whatever, because like it's very likely that these things experience similar price movements as many other goods and services either have experienced or will experience. And so to the extent that you're able to spend a comparatively low amount of money to bring on commodity, that's likely to, it's already at kind of mid-cycle type pricing and could potentially be at much higher prices. Like it's a great opportunity for operators to be able to benefit from that. So I think companies that can earn high returns in the current environment. It's not such a bad idea to bring forward some capital to be able to take advantage of abnormally low services. Well, yeah, I think that's a good point. I want to circle back, you know, when you talk about energy and the world, you know, 
supporting the world and actually how many people are being brought out of poverty through access to affordable energy. I will just say that I know all of us certainly appreciate it, but I hope we in the oil field get a lot better at telling that story. You know, I, I think I think it's just fascinating. You you totally take for granted, like, yeah, I can drive my car and I can go do cool things. And, you know, having been to places like India and small villages and, you know, West Africa and, and some places where people are really just barely getting by. And the fact that a moped allows them to go to a market and get, you know, something, you know, something to clean water or, you know, the things you totally take for granted. It's like, that's where the oil demand is coming from. It's, it's probably not that we're all getting private jets in the West to fly around and increasing our carbon intensity individually. But anyways, I think that's a really important story that we tell. And it's good news to hear good news about energy for once. No, it, it is. And I think, Josh, like you mentioned with, you know, perhaps non-OECD countries, getting out of poverty and in, in there, I mean, I don't think we've even really got an understanding of the energy demand once people do move into, you know, industrial, you know, economies and further. And it's actually, there's, there's something I'd come across a while back and, and looked into a bit was the environmental Kuznick curve. Are you familiar with that, Josh? Sorry, what, what is that again? The environmental Kuznick curve. It's basically, it's a essentially an, an N-shaped curve where on the Y-axis, you have the level of environmental degradation and on the x-axis you have gdp per capita and it increases once you basically it increases pre-industrial economies and it gets up to a point where they say okay well now we're at a point of gdp growth and we're happy and everyone has energy then it drops off to where then they focus more on like you know say the us now we've, we've reached this this economic growth and we're industrialized and we have all this access to energy and technology and everything else. Well then, oh, now let's focus on the environment where a lot of the people haven't even gotten to that point. So it's an interesting curve. And it, I think in time will show countries like India, China, and all these other ones, they haven't reached that point. So like they don't really care about environmental degradation in as much as they care about energy. Anyway, I was just curious if you've heard of, heard of that. It's, it's an come across it in some economic stuff that we looked into for class. But anyway, interesting curve, but I really agree with you. I, I cannot see the energy demand going anywhere but up, especially as emerging economies <laughs> get hopefully reliable and affordable energy in the future. And so I would say I'm, you know, I'm certainly bullish myself and can jump on that wagon with you. I think it's kind of this like very weird thing where you have people flying private jets who have never suffered food insecurity, kind of donating large amounts of money or really kind of like advocating. And then lots of people supporting this who also have never had food insecurity, have never had some of the severe issues that extreme poverty in you know, frontier economies and you know, third world countries that people experience every day. And you don't have to like go very far to see. I mean, you can like, there are many documentaries and movies and so on, where you can see kind of what this looks like. And it's like fairly well documented beyond statistics where you can see from a humanitarian perspective. But it's like kind of ironic because the same people that are like pushing for higher energy prices, which directly most negatively affect those poorest people in the world, also push for like very like woke sort of policies in their own countries, where ironically, if you measure it based on those sort of internal measures of like, you know, benefiting black or brown people, I mean, the people in the world who are most negatively affected by higher energy prices 
are black and brown people who are deeply poor in various countries in Africa and South America and Asia. And these are people that benefit the most from more access to, you know, I'll even say coal and natural gas and oil and various products. And so, and these are people that suffer from food insecurity and suffer from other kind of things that we have trouble even really understanding. But there's, it's like really ironic because the same people that are pushing for like less access to energy are also pushing for kind of in their own countries or in their own cities or whatever, for what they're calling like racial justice or whatever equity, when like by producing more oil and gas, by having it available for people so that there's plentiful food and you know fertilizer to get to food and oil to power tractors to be able to have more food and you know to be able to power basic transport and other sort of basic needs it's truly ironically truly woke because it like gives there are fewer starving people in africa and south america and so on right so kind of this like very deep hypocrisy and very kind of weird cynical like it's kind of hard to even really understand how people have these sort of like simultaneous views and things that they push for when in reality like prosperity and available, plentiful, relatively cheap energy is extremely, you know, positive for the world. So I'm, I'm talking about much higher prices, which is unfortunately very bad for those same people that are suffering in these various kind of developing countries, but maybe it's a wake up call and it'll be lead to a period of energy abundance again. <laughs> right. Well, that's like Alex Epstein says, anti-fossil fuels is anti-human. <laughs> Strong. Yeah. He's an interesting character, but he's pro fossil fuels and he's a big advocate. So that's good. I don't have any other questions. Matt, do you have any, anything else for Josh while we've got him on the hook here? No, I, I mean, the thing is, so I have the pleasure of, you know, being a personal friend of Josh's. And so normally I'll bribe him with some scotch or something because he made grills. He smokes some amazing meats. He's very, very good at it. And we never, well, I try to tell him to keep practicing so I can keep eating it. <laughs> but I have the pleasure of getting to hear him tell many of his thoughts, uh, you know, and, and test out his theses. And we get to argue with each other late into the night. And then I get in trouble for staying out too late with my family, but it's usually worth it to some degree. And so I'm just always grateful to, to hear more of, of his insight. But Josh, I mean, if we want to argue with you on Twitter or follow out, you know, follow Anywhere where you're maybe putting out some of these interesting white papers, how would how would we do that? Bison Interests. Bisoninterests.com is our website. Bison Interests Twitter handle. I've been fairly active somewhat recently with, with my own Twitter handle, which you can see interacting sometimes with Bison, but those are those are kind of the best places to go. Yes. And I mean, yeah, Josh has been pretty active on Twitter. I've I've developed a whole new appreciation both via Astro's Twitter and now some of the energy things. Justin, a lot of the graphs I share are actually like Josh's retweets. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, that's a really good one for conversation. So if you want to just see really interesting things or, or him sharing what he finds interesting, it forms some opinions. It's well worth it. So I don't really have anything else, but really want to thank you, Josh, for joining us. We always appreciate just your take because it's a little different than what we do day to day. And so thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. And with that said, please feel free to send Matt or I a message on LinkedIn if you have any questions, thoughts, or any ideas for a show, or you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Thanks again for all the support, everyone. Take care. Take care. Take care.
Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.